Hello, and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I am thrilled to be joined again by Kier Graf, most recently my guest on the Color of Money podcast. My memory's only, came to you. My memory's only so good, Kier, as you could tell. Thank <laughs> you for joining me once again. I'm very happy to be back. That was a ton of fun. And, and this movie, I think, has just as much, if not more, to talk about. And all you did in the intervening time was like release a novel with James Patterson. That's, yeah, just another week for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. And I'm thrilled to have you back. We have a lot to cover here with the verdict. So let's jump right in. And uh, we'll start a little bit with how the film came to the screen. I think that the niche that you're carving out in the full cast and crew universe is the literary adaptation to the screen. Cause we've done that with color of money. We're going to be doing it again here with the verdict. Let's start with the novel, which I read. I'm presuming you read Barry Reed's original novel. What were your thoughts? I have a confession to make. I haven't read the novel. Are you serious? I could, Chicago public library system didn't have it. I ordered a copy from Abe books did not, <laughs> it did not arrive. So I, I read stuff that I could find about the novel but I, uh, oh, amazing. I, yeah. I have failed in that respect. I think it's out of print. It is long out of print. Yeah. Which I think was, I don't know. It struck me as strange because I assumed it was sort of a famous novel. Turns out it's not. Turns out it's not very good. Apologies to the estate of Barry Reed. It is completely unlike the movie and what David Mamet did in adapting this was kind of interesting. I'm going to start by just playing you a little bit about, uh, this is Sidney Lumet talking about how he uh, came to be involved and what his take was on David Mamet's adaptation of Barry Reed's novel. Here's a little bit of that. Uh, the Verdict is an adaptation of a novel, which uh, I didn't particularly like. In fact, I never read the novel until after I'd committed to do the movie on the basis of David Mamet's script. And if I read the novel first, I might not have done it. I don't know how David drew that story from that book. It's really David's creation in every way. And what he chose to do was to make it a story about salvation. It's more about the personal salvation of the Paul Newman character than it is about the case itself. Uh, the case only serves as the instrument by which a man saves himself. And I don't know how David created that, other than the fact that he's one of our best writers. But he, not, for me, none of that came from the book. It's totally David's creation. It's pretty... In, in another interview, he called the book total trash. <laughs> I think he's probably being a little more polite here. I wouldn't say the yeah. book is total trash, but it is certainly not a great example of a courtroom drama. It doesn't have any of the pacing or the plotting of a Grisham or any of the masters of the form. Uh, it does contain the bare-bone rudiments of the story that we see in the verdict, but it is an incredible feat of adaptation. And you can hear in all these Lumet interviews that he's kind of incredulous that Mamet would read this book and figure out how to get what he got out of it, out of it, because it's not really there. It's a lot of very meticulous courtroom kind of page after page after page after page of 
of these things. None of the characterizations are as sharp and as, as incisive. It's interesting because um, the reviews at the time were, were positive. Um, in fact, Kirkus reviews, which uh, kind of made its claim early on as being the review journal that was kind of catering to the film and TV industry, uh, noted at the end of their review that it should play on TV or film even better than it reads. But they did really like the book. New York Times liked it as well. I mean, I, I'm not going to argue for the books. I haven't read it and you have. I did think it was a little surprising that Lumet, who in every other aspect of his career seems very generous and very willing to talk about the every single person in the film crew as being a collaborator on the film, so so discounts the book that even if it's a mediocre novel, really did form the basis for the movie because without the basic framework, they wouldn't have had the movie. But I, I he he is obviously all in on the Mammoth uh, screenplay, which we'll we'll get to. Yeah, and I I, I do want to also signal out. I, I don't know why, but for the last ten days, I have listened. If I'm if I'm out walking around with my earbuds on, I've been listening to Sidney Lumet's commentary track for the verdict all the time. I've probably listened to it 40, 50 times. Wow. <laughs> And I don't know why it's not like I'm getting any new information out of it, but you know, this movie got into me the way color of money did the way very few other films that I do on the podcast did. And I think I just, I just, I'm not ready to be done living inside the movie. And it struck me listening to it as often as I did, how unique it is that as a director, he spends so much time praising everyone else. Yes. Is, yeah. Seems easy to to do and obviously smart to do that, but it feels very genuine. His praise for Mamet, his praise for all these actors. He's 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 impressed by the work they did in his movie because he understands it's not just his movie. And and I love uh, his his formulation, the way he always says it. He always says, Who is one of our best actors? Who is one yes. of our best actresses? <laughs> who is one of our best writers? Like this kind of like, yes. you know, we we in the community. And he's he's one of one of the best. Uh and it, obviously Mamet wrote an incredible screenplay, but you know, Lumet definitely improved upon it too. Mm -hmm. Uh having read the screenplay, there are there are areas where I would say that Lumet made an inspired choice in changing maybe the setting of a scene. Um or the, the the pinball sequence that yes. opens the movie, you know, is all him and then and also pays off halfway through the film. Right. Uh, but he's obviously a very humble guy. He speaks a lot in all of his writings and all of his interviews about how he, he disdains auteur theory. He completely uh, he refuses to have a, you know, a film by Sidney Lumet as a credit mm. at the top because he really does want to give credit to everybody's contribution except the novelist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if the novel, I mean, I didn't hear him sort of un speak uncharitably of the novel other than the clip we just heard about where he's sort of saying like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I would, if, if you gave me the novel, I would never think this is yeah. a great movie. But I wonder if any of that has to do with sort of what he's aware was kind of the torturous route to the screen that the adaptation took. As I understand it, I think Mamet did the first pass at adapting the book and then as subsequent actors got involved, particularly, it sounds like Robert Redford, uh, the script. I believe got, Robert Redford was developing it with Sidney Pollock to direct. Yeah. And he kept pushing the script as Lumet has this great theory in his book, Making Movies, which between the Making Movies book by Sidney Lumet and Sidney Lumet's commentary track on the verdict, 
you know how in the movie Heat, the De Niro character buys the bank score from the Kelso character who's played by Tom Noonan in a wheelchair? Mm-hmm. And Tom Noonan is sharing these incredibly detailed schematics of bank alarm systems with the De Niro character. And De Niro says, you could build a bank with these. Well, <laughs> you could make a movie knowing nothing about making movies with just those two source materials. You could read Lumet's book, Making Movies, and you could listen to his commentary track on The Verdict, and you would do a pretty damn good job and probably a 90% better job than most people do simply organizing crews to come together to make a film. It contains so much wisdom. Now, Agreed. it sounded like, so one of the Lumet theories in the book is that there are kicking the dog scenes and there are petting the dog scenes. <laughs> and the kicking the dog scenes is basically the entirety of Newman's performance for three quarters of the verdict where you're unafraid to make your protagonist unlikable, do terrible things, be seen to be unsavory, scheming, malicious, you know, venal, alcoholic versus petting the dog, which is, you know, your, your protagonist is the hero. He's doing wonderful things. He's righting wrongs in the world. He may not be that flawed. Apparently in Lumet's telling Redford wanted to replace all the kicking the dog scenes with petting the dog scenes. Well, and it's such an irony, too, that uh, Redford and Newman had been looking for years and, and would go on to look for years for like the perfect kind of right. vehicle for to come back and, and reunite. And I guess at some point there was a rumor going around that this was going to be the vehicle, because when Redford was uh, attached to this, um, there a rumor went around that um, Newman, I think, was going to play Con Cannon, the, the lawyer. Um opposite him and that this was going to be their big screen comeback. And I don't think there was ever any truth to that, but somehow people wanted to believe it. But it, it is very interesting that Newman then took it over from Redford. And I think we both could agree that would not have been the same movie with Redford. It would not have been a classic uh, like it is. I think it fits very neatly into the, the, the Newman, you know, we've obviously kind of, we share a love of late career Newman stuff, but, you know, you talk about the color of money, there's there's some real similarities between these characters too. Yeah. I mean, Fast Eddie is a guy who's kind of ruined by, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. Bert the gambler represents this kind of a, a gambling concern. He's a single person, but you could kind of have him stand in for, uh, sh- you know, shadowy figures or whatever mm-hmm. that ruin this guy's talent. Uh, in the verdict, we learn partway through the movie yeah. that uh, Frank Galvin was a very promising lawyer, really sharp and really idealistic but a little naive at the same time and his talent was corrupted he went into a very dark place and there are little moments in this film where if you it almost echoes fast eddie kind of saying don't worry about me i'm getting it back mm-hmm. uh, galvin says something similar to mickey does, yeah. uh, when mickey talks about how rusty he is yeah. but in no way are, is it derivative or is one derivative of the other they're just i think they fit nicely into this kind of Thing that Newman does very well later in his career. Well, it's interesting. The Redford story reminds me that, you know, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes before we see a film. And it's also an awareness, which the great ones have an awareness of their own persona as actors. I mean, Redford would be right in a way to steer a screenplay that contained all of the things that the Newman version of the verdict contains away from the kicking the dog scenes towards more Redford-esque scenes because the Redford screen persona 
you can't imagine him doing the things or being the broken down <laughs> wreck that Newman is in this movie so convincingly. And also, by the way, and I'm going to say this because I don't believe this is mere conjecture or podcast speculation, as we talked about a little bit in the Color of Money episode, there is enough extant Newman content in his own words about the challenges he faced in his life that the reason his Frank Galvin is so unbelievably put on screen is because he lived that experience himself. Yeah. He has absolutely in his own life had hangover mornings or ends of nights of the sort he so perfectly puts on screen. So I think Redford, you know, it's easy to say, oh, he Redford wanted to make some cheesy, less commercial, you know, more commercial version of this, but that's just really Redford being as true to his persona as Sidney Lumet is being when they come back to him after Pollock and maybe some other directors and some other actors passed on the role. And they say, we really want to do this. Would you do this? And he reads all the scripts that were done. And he says, I will do it, but we have to go back to the Mammoth script, yeah, which they agree to do. An interesting side note, at the time, uh, just before the verdict was offered to him, he was trying to uh, make a film of Malcolm X based on a Mammoth screenplay mm. and receiving some serious pushback about that. And it was kind of falling apart. So he was very happy to have a ready-made project that he could quickly move forward with fall in his lap. It's also interesting when you think about it, this is only Mammoth's second ever produced screenplay. Yeah. <laughs> he, he wrote, which I forgot, that he wrote The Postman Always Rings Twice, the Nicholson, Jessica Lang version from 1981. That was his first produced screenplay. The Verdict was his second. Now, Kier, you are an author. You are a writer. I am not. To me, it's, it's staggering what Mammoth is able to do in this screenplay. I mean, it, it people make people make hay out of what are supposed to be the greatest screenplays that you could read to learn the craft. You know, William Goldman gets a lot of run. Sure. Th this to me, uh, I would be very hard pressed to find a better example of screenwriting than Mamet's script for the verdict. It's absolutely remarkable. And obviously, you know, it's maybe a second screenplay. The guy had a little experience as a playwright. Um, and, and it shines through in, the, in dialogue, but movies are different animals and he really adapts quite seamlessly to the, the different medium. Um, he, he, I think his plotting is excellent. His foreshadowing is really good. There are a couple of times when they kind of finessed it in the transition from the script to actually filming it. Obviously things get changed in editing and, and all that, but um, the dialogue is astonishing. Obviously, there are speeches that give you chills in this. And he's also such a precise crafter of dialogue. I mean, it's almost a little irritating when you read the screenplay because he underlines so many words. Yeah. But he has such a refined ear. It's almost as though he can't stand to imagine an author putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Mm -hmm. So he does a lot of underlining, but you can hear it, you know. And, and there are some lines that are just pure mammoth, you know, like, Take the money uh, you won when you got when they give you the money, whatever. I'm butchering it, but um, but there are other things too that you know it doesn't come across as a mammoth vehicle in the way that some of the scripts that he wrote for himself and directed himself come across, where those are pure mammoth. This is a really smooth adaptation into a more commercial project that is also still got plenty of edge, lots of mm -hmm. lots of soul, 
and is appropriate for somebody like Sidney Lumet. You know, I'm, gl- I'm so glad you mentioned that thing about underlining words in the screenplay, because of course the cliche for film nerds later in Mamet's career, certainly as a director, is that his dialogue as portrayed by his actors became very stylized. Yes. And it became the the on-screen version of those underlines you've seen here. This is a very naturalistically played movie, probably because of it's Sidney Lumet is directing it and the the power of of Newman and his commitment to what's going on here. Um, but it is interesting. You can see so many interesting tidbits. We'll get into this as, as we get to some of the ephemera that we are going to yeah. discuss at the end of this episode, where we will talk a little bit about how we view people like Mamet today. Well, he's made a very rightward political shift. Um, and you can see some of that in this, I would say. I would say that there is some version of that uh, already present in 1982. Uh, in the yeah, verdict. Not that, it, not, that, not that it's a right-wing take of society, but there are some kernels in there, and we'll talk about that when we get there later. But certainly in the dialogue parts, I see that. I want to play a little bit of what you're talking about because, A, it allows us to segue uh, into the cast and into the film. This this is the Jack Warden scene where uh, Newman's character has turned down $210,000 to basically be bought off the case by the Archdiocese of Boston. Jack Warden has washed his hands of the Newman character after the harrowing opening sequence of depicting Frank Galvin's alcoholism in the morning after. Galvin has had a change of heart. He's now going to try the case, and he needs Jack Warden to help him. And this is a brilliant piece of dialogue, a brilliant piece of characterization, and such a great two-hander between two amazing actors, Jack Warden and Newman. Here's a little bit of that scene. Are you out of your mind? I need your help. You need my help? You need a goddamn keeper. Are you telling me you turned down 210 grand? Huh? What are you, nuts? What are you going to do, bring her back to life? I'm going to help her. To do what? To do what, for Christ's sake? Help her to do what? She's dead. They killed her. I'm trying to buy it. That's the fucking point, dummy. Let them buy it. No, we let them buy the case. That's why I took it. Now, look, you just dropped this. You understand? We'll go up to, go up to New Hampshire. We'll oh, kill Mick. some fucking Oh, Mick, here. Mick, Mick. You said, no, listen to me. You said, if not now, when? I know what I said, but not now, all right? Yeah, I'll tell you something else. I can win it. I can win this case. You won, Frank. You won. When they give you the money, that means you won. Now, look, we, we don't want to go to court. Is this... Is this getting through to you? Do you know who the attorney for the Archdiocese is? Ed Kincannon. He's a good man. He's a good man? <laughs> He's the prince of fucking darkness. He'll have people testifying they saw a water skiing in Marblehead last summer. Now, look, Frank, don't fuck with this case, huh? I gotta stand up for that girl. Look, Frank, I know what you're going through. You're trying to wipe out some old business. I understand that. I do. But not now. Call a bishop, will you? You're gonna try this case, Mick. Will you help me? I'm going to need your help, Mick. Will you help me? And of course, the answer will be yes, I will. That is such a, oh, oh my God. So many good lines. And I particularly love the, uh, you know, you, you, you told me if not now, when. I know what I said, but not now. I love that. Not now. <laughs> not now. Yeah. <laughs> That's so mammoth. 
It's very mammoth. Lumet yeah. says that Jack Warden's quality as an actor is you believe everything he says and that other actors loved working with Jack Warden because he did a lot of their job for them. Yes. Just by being in a scene with him. It's such a realistic, grounded, believable scene. He is absolutely one of my favorite character actors. If you can call, I guess you can call him a character actor. He's a that guy, but he's, he's so good. And that sequence is so great. The humor. Yeah. I mean, to pull off humor with what they're talking about is a very tricky, delicate balance that happens throughout the film. And Jack Warden provides a lot of that. I, I just can't yeah. remember that. And Jack Warden, one of, one of two holdovers from Lumet's other magnificent courtroom drama, 12 Angry Men, also That's another right. a great episode of Full Casting Crew, I will say. Love that one. Thank you. Um, but, you know, how, what, what other director can, can say that they've got two of the top 10 courtroom dramas of all time? I mean... <laughs> Or it's as, astonishing. As he says in his commentary track, I think there are three great, he thinks the, he says the three best film actors in history are Henry Fonda, James Mason, and Spencer Tracy. Right. And I've had the good fortune to work with two of them. <laughs> you, you kind of get the feeling that he believes two of them are the greatest film actors who ever lived because he got to work with them. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, that's, that's pretty, that's a pretty when you talk about film acting, and this is one of the things that's incredible about Lumet is to think of this career that he had that spans from, I believe he was a student in the, the studio. Like he was, he was a student with all of these method actors as they were coming up. He was a play a director on theatrical plays. He, he did live television. He did all these movies. I was wondering if you thought the reason he never won an Academy Award as a director, other than an honorary one, he lost six times. Hmm. How could that be? Is he was like the Newman of directing. He's the Newman of directing. Is there something about him that the Academy didn't like? Is he viewed as too much of a workmanlike director in some way, despite the fact that he made more iconic classic films than any, almost any other filmmaker you could name? I really don't get it. I mean, that's my best theory. I, I, I spent some time thinking about that. And, and I think it's, it's partly because of his own refusal to blow, blow his own horn mm. and to, to be the guy who's like, you know, a Sidney Lumet film. I have a signature and he actively rebels against it. But he's also a guy who people have said about him that he was happiest working and he wasn't always going to wait for the perfect project. And, he, and he also just felt that he could learn something from every project. And threw himself into it. So I think, you know, I mean, the same year that The Verdict came out, Death Trap came out, which is a, a fun little mm -hmm. confection, yeah. I guess. But, you know, it's, it, it, you know, he directs two films in, in close succession. I don't honestly don't know which one filmed first. But, um, you know, he, do, uh, he directed The Wiz, which is probably not looked mm -hmm. back on as being classic cinema. He had some real dogs. And I think that um, that desire just to be a working director probably hurt him. Do you think it's kind of like the, he's also not a Los Angeles guy, you know, yeah. it, it's kind of Woody Allen-esque in that, you know, I like to work this time every year. I'm going to make a film every year. I'm, it's not about, I'm making iconic classics. You know, I'm going to make as many turkeys as I am classics. Um, I don't know if that's a thing, you know, like yeah. making a movie like this, almost wholly removed from Los Angeles. 
that, that could definitely come into some some anti-lumet yeah. prejudice from the academy. Oh my God, I mean, why you're you're too good for us? I don't know. How do you how do you make the verdict and not win best director? It's just ridiculous. I mean, it, let alone Newman not winning. We'll get to that when we talk about that. But if you don't mind, I, I want to ask you um, a question, please. Since we're talking about um, kind of Jack, we're, we just played listen to the great scene with Jack Warden and t- talking about yeah, you know, Warden mm-hmm. brought, brings him the case. Mickey brings brings Galvin the case. Yeah. And it's a it's a can't win case. And when he when he he arrives at Newman's office, finds him passed out drunk, and the office wrecked, it's because he is upset that New, that Galvin hasn't followed up on this can't miss mm-hmm. case that he brought him eighteen months ago, and Galvin's done nothing. Yep. Now I love this movie with all my heart, but I came to see it on repeated viewings as a bit of a flaw that we're introduced to Galvin chasing crummy gigs at funeral homes, handing, pressing his card into mm-hmm. widow's palms when he had a potentially really big case yeah. that he has somehow just literally forgotten about. Like he has, he has absolutely no cases. Would, would a guy who, I mean, he's obviously at a low, low point, but he is trying to earn money. Does it make sense that he's completely forgotten about this, this case? I think it does because I think the point of of that is that this guy is so far gone he doesn't even realize when he has an opportunity. And and I think that the dialogue where Jack Warden finds him after that brilliant night out on the tiles scene, I think what it's about is just the same way he says, when they give you the money, you won, dummy. Uh, Galvin hasn't paid attention to this case in 18 months. And yeah. he has no idea what it's even involved. He doesn't know who the, he doesn't know anything about the case. He has to begin educating himself about it the next day, that day that, uh, that, 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 that Jack finds him in his office. He, he goes out, he sees her for the first time. He's, then he starts to get the dollar signs in his eyes. And that great scene where he's meeting with her sister and her husband for the first time is one of those scenes where Lumet says one of the hardest things for an actor to do is to pretend to be sincere in a manner that we know the character is not actually being sincere. So I think he wasn't even aware of the bird in hand he had until uh, until the Jack Warden character comes over and shakes it out of him. So that didn't, yeah. what I didn't understand in that sequence, when he writes the note and signs it with a woman's name and puts it on his door, is that so he can miss the appointment with the sister? Did you? I did, think what's going on it's there? It's puzzling because it says Judge Geary called lunch tomorrow. Yeah. And then he signs it Claire and tapes it right. to his door and leaves and goes back to the bar where we've established he plays pinball and drinks in the daytime. Yeah. And in the scene pre- previous, Jack Warden says they're going to be here at noon. Right. And then subsequent to the bar scene, he comes back, he does the eye drops, the elevator doesn't work. He has to take the stairs and she's waiting for him outside his office. He's like, why didn't you go in? She says it's locked. And he pretends to be surprised at the note. I think that's a device to say, I'm so practiced at the art of being a alcoholic fuck up that I've learned an arsenal of deflective mechanisms. Yeah, I, I agree that that one's a little confusing. On, on the first point, I think I, I think I can accept that, and I, it's clearly what we're intended to to believe. Maybe he got the gig when he was completely hammered and just mm-hmm. 
forgot. Uh, on the note, yeah, it's a little puzzling because it's like, it, it reads as if he's just planning to be late and, or or did he, I mean, because he I, doesn't, I, once he lets them in, he doesn't let them into his no. actual <laughs> office. He lets them into the outer part of the office, which is not trashed. And he kind of apologizes and says, oh, I've got papers in there. You can't go in there. Well, you know, he, li- he lies more pointedly than apologizing. Yeah, I mean, the reason they can't little, go in is because he destroyed it in an, in a in a drunk the night before. Yeah, but it's but it is weird. the The ruse with the note is a little odd because it's like if it's a delaying tactic. I mean, he's clearly just trying to make it look like he has staff and he doesn't have staff. I think but, that's what it is. I think now that you said that, it's about the fact that his girl, as he says to the sister, "My girl, I'd, I'd offer you a cup of coffee, but my girl's gone out." I think it's a ruse to pretend. He has it more together than he does. That's what it's and, for. And, you know, and it's actually, it's it's buying him an excuse to meet in yes. what would be the secretary's office. Right. Because she's, his non-existent secretary has said she's out. And he's like, well, we can meet here. Yes. And, you know, and, I'm and so sorry. Yeah. And a non-existent judge on a non-existent case has called. He's important. Yes. The note says, I'm involved in other cases. My girl, I have staff, but they happen not to be in. And I was unaware that she wasn't going to be in. And it's all so brilliantly part of however and whoever got into the alcoholic mind as well as the screenplay or Newman's portrayal of it yeah. does because that is such a truthful moment uh, for the alcoholic as deployed, as deployed there. And I think Newman is so – I mean, I think Lumet is so right that when you watch um, Newman's performance here, God, it's so good. And it's so layered. And he is he is conveying false sincerity to this sister. Um, and yet we know he's full of shit. It's 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 a phenomenal piece of acting all the way through for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to read something that um that Lumet had said about Newman. This is uh from one of the Newman books that I think you read and I read. Um, Paul and I were talking about his character, Frank Galvin's drinking. I know about that, said Paul. I had the feeling that at one point Paul had a problem too, though I I never asked further. We discussed the concept of playing the denial, which was one of the acting coach Sanford Meisner's great insights. How do you play a drunk? As someone who says, I'm not drunk, I'm sober. You play the sobriety, put all the effort into being sober. Paul was very concerned with self-pity because a drunk is by nature self-pitying. Paul thought up these physicalizations that may be unpleasant, but revealed Galvin's problem. The first time we see him, he's going to a funeral and spraying his mouth with Banaka. That was Paul's idea, as was Galvin's always putting in eye drops. To stay sober, Galvin had to keep moving. Stillness meant he'd lift a glass. When he's working, he has to stay in motion. For Galvin slash Paul, you see the resolution in his final address to the jury. He doesn't move at all. Newman says himself, this is him quoting I'm quoting Paul Newman, quote, I don't think I ever reached any comfortable emotional moment in any picture until I did the verdict. (laughs) In fact, I can only remember a couple of moments that really worked in my films. That's a pretty, that's a pretty crazy statement coming from Paul Newman. That absolutely is. And it so tracks with everything we were talking about. And I think reading about Newman and his, his journey, his, the incredible journey that he took from, you know, hunky beefcake to actor emeritus, which is, when you think about it, kind of crazy and not supposed to happen 
mm-hmm. didn't really happen. It's I'm sort of positing this now that it's going to happen with Brad Pitt. Uh, I made this in my Moneyball episode recently. It occurred to me that Brad Pitt is very has a very similar career arc to Paul Newman, and that it wouldn't be surprising to me if the greatest Brad Pitt acting performances were to come from the age 55 on, as they did with Paul Newman. That is a uh, that's a fascinating theory. I mean, I can kind of see it. And he's also um, was a, was an was an exotically pretty human being in the early part of his career, but not much of an actor. Um, and he's, yeah, Newman definitely feels ambivalent about this kind of his curse of beauty. Absolutely. I think it took him a long time to overcome it. He didn't really overcome it until he until he aged. I mean, out he's of still it. an amazing, amazing looking middle aged guy, an amazing <laughs> yeah. looking old guy. But I think. But, you know, he, he did age out of it to and, some degree. And, and he, he speaks very, very frankly about the fact that he could coast by and frequently did on tricks using his eyes, his looks. And like Lumet, mm-hmm. right? He he made a lot of movies for money and to work. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm honing and developing a Brad Pitt slash Paul Newman equal track theory. Um, I, I think that um, some of the stuff that... It's interesting because we, when we talked about uh, The Hustler and the Color of Money, a number of people involved with those films had drinking problems or were heavy drinkers right. you know, as they were in the time. This is very interesting because here we've got a director who, by no one's account, was a drinker. Mm-hmm. He does confess in, in, an, in a candid moment that he has suffered from depression. Yes. And that actually, that was the genesis of the pinball scene is that when he's depressed, he, he likes to do some kind of little game of chance to kind of see, how's my day going to go today? Yeah. Which sort of feels like it, it it tracks. It definitely fits with the Galvin character, but a lot of the physicalization stuff feels like it must have come only oh, yeah. from Newman. There's a scene <laughs> early on when he's circling want at, or not want ads, oh, he's yes. circling death notices and looking at funeral homes he's gonna go to. And his hand is shaking so much that he has to lean forward to yes. to suck the top yeah. of the whiskey off the glass. That's not in the screenplay. In the screenplay, Mamet of all people writes it as a cup of tea and he <laughs> squeezes the extra tea out of the tea bag into the, yeah. it's it's a minor thing, but that just feels like it must've been Newman bringing, bringing this moment. Well, how much information is contained in that shot where you don't see Paul Newman, you see the death notices, you see a broken apart powdered donut and yes. a shot of whiskey and a cigarette. I mean, talk about character development. It's all right there. That's the bre- That's breakfast. Yes, a powder donut, and the shot that, as Lumet says brilliantly, he has to take the top off of it. I love that phrase. Yes. He he leans over and he's got to sip it because he's got the shakes. Nice little touch also in the physicalization is when the bishop has his underling present Frank Galvin with the two hundred and ten thousand dollars settlement offer in the archdiocese office. As Galvin takes the paper, his hand is shaking. Yes, and. Prior to that, the bishop's assistant pours him some bullshit glass of sherry or something. Yes. Which we know the Galvin character would probably toss back in one, but he doesn't even reach for it, I think, because he knows his hand would shake. Right? Oh, interesting. I wonder if it goes that far. I think interesting. It, I think it feels like it does because he eyes it. If you watch the movie again, the the guy is pouring him this glass of sherry. And yeah. you can see Galvin, in a very slender, delicate very glass. slender glass that would be sort of like difficult. It's not like a rocks glass where you can maybe hold it with two hands and steady yourself. You'd have to pick it up with a few fingers of one hand. Yeah. And <laughs> as we've already seen, uh, the shakes are quite 
pronounced. I wonder if, and I, I would have to think. It's so specific yeah. the way he puts the eye drops in, which is, it's designed, I guess, to prevent the excess dr uh, dripping down your face because he does this. He puts them in, tilts his head back, and then violently lurches forward to to shoot out the excess drops. It's distinctive. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good. It's so. Oh brilliant. my god! Yeah. So I I think you're probably right on why he doesn't drink the sherry. I I I kind of had been reading it as he's actually really serious about his intent because he's coming to a that. big decision here. But I think that makes perfect sense. I don't want to get too in the weeds with this stuff, but I love so. I think there's so many great little choices about physicalizations or things that are conveyed through staging that is almost un, unnoticed. Mm. Uh, when he meets with the the bishop, he's holding his oh, yes. briefcase in his lap it, across and across his chest, almost protectively, kind of like a, like a yes. shield. But it also serves to make show that he's very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And Lumetta's co constantly putting him in these scenes of kind of grandeur, he says in a, in a voiceover mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, he, he wanted the weight of these institutions to be re represented kind of by their grandeur to kind of further show how out of his league Galvin is. Yes. But the absolute best one, and we have to talk about the, the scene where he, he meets with Judge Hoyle and oh, Chambers yes. with Concana the first time. But the... When he walks in, he looks for a place to put his coat, can't see one. Nobody helps him <laughs> Nobody helps because him. they're icing him out. And so he has to sit with his coat in his lap. Yes. And then, of course, at the end of that scene, his rival calmly takes his coat from the judge's private <laughs> closet as if he knew it was there all along. And it's just masterful. I'm going to play that scene here. I have it right here. Well, Terry, no bargain ever was completed. That's Other than Milo quickly when Boucher. both parties really care to make a deal. Well, now. Have you boys tried to resolve your little difficulties? Because that certainly would save the Commonwealth a lot of time and bother. Well, it's a very complicated case, Your Honor. Well, yeah, I'm sure it is, Frank, but uh, let me tell you something. If we find it so complex, how the hell do you think you're going to make a jury understand it? See my point? Now, um, let's talk a minute. Frank. What would you and your client take right now, this very minute, to walk out of here and let this damn thing drop? My client can't walk, Your Honor. I know full well she can't, Frankie. You see the padre on your way out. He'll punch your ticket. You follow me? I'm just trying to help you. Your Honor, Bishop Brophy and the Archdiocese have offered plenty of $210,000. What? My doctors didn't want a settlement at any price. They wanted this cleared up in court. They want their vindication. I quite agree with them. But for today, the offer stands before the publicity of a trial begins. For today only, when I walk out that door, the offer is withdrawn. Just so long as you understand that, Mr. Galvin. It's got to be that way. We're going to try the case. That's it? <laughs> oh, come on, guys. Life is too short. Now, you tell me if you're playing chicken or you really mean it. He really means it.
Milo O'Shea is just terrific in that. It's so, so oily. And obviously, uh, Lumet just gets a huge kick out of him, you know, he saying does. things like, you know, would you buy a used car from that man? <laughs> he he calls him the most corrupt looking actor he can think of with the black <laughs> eyebrows and the white hair. Well, another thing I thought of in this scene, you know, when you have a character eating as the ju- the judge is eating his breakfast, his his catered breakfast in his chambers, there's, there's, why does it add a sinister layer to a characterization when someone is eating as the judges? I noticed this also in a, an otherwise not very good movie, but I can't remember even the name of it. Do you remember the movie where Gary Oldman is like an evil senator who's plotting against Joan Allen, who is, I think, the vice president? Oh, yeah. It was set in Boston also. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of it. It's like the senator. He has this the vice broad Boston accent and this huge hair. I remember that. And there's a scene where he's threatening her and they're eating at a restaurant and he's he's eating with cutlery and a steak and chewing. And it makes him so much more evil. And I don't know why that is. I'd love to talk to some filmmaker who'd explain to me why chewing while talking makes Milo O'Shea so much more corrupt than if he was just having the conversation. That's a really interesting point. A, a writer friend of mine, uh, James Kennedy, has this theory that eating is one of these things that you can use to humanize uh, protagonist, and I think he's absolutely right. I mean, there are all sorts of scenes, like particularly if it's a humble meal, like you know, Ray and Star Wars is making this weird little mm. space cake or something, and mm-hmm. it, it just like brings you into their world. Everybody has to eat. It's something we can all identify with. But I think it's like, I think what happens in a situation like this is when when you are not allowed to eat and you are forced to watch somebody else eating. That is, it's almost like they're withholding from you. Uh, Frank is our avatar in this case. And so we're, we're, we're being made to watch somebody else eat. That's a very different thing. It's very unpleasant. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I, 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 but I agree with you. I think it completely works to have the bad guy do it. That the the James Mason line has got to be that way. I mean, (laughs) I could listen to James Mason's scenes and you could talk about them ad infinitum for his, his syntax and the way he utters words and uses syllables and draws them out or, or cuts them short or, uh, he, it is, it is astonishing. We'll, we'll play some scenes of his as well, but he is an incredible master of the art form. I also love in the tail, the, the button to this scene where you mentioned that James Mason's coats are kept in the judge's own coat closet. He gets his coat, he walks out, he looks at Galvin, who's still seated in his chair, and he just gives this, this this kind of like sadly dismissive shake of his head and then walks out of the room. It's just so, oh, he, he just, he puts him down so hard. He's not even worth a parting shot, I guess. Yes, yes. <laughs> and Concanon like does that throughout by being sort of disdainful to people, um, but almost like they're not worth his time. I mean, right. he does that later to the witness, yeah. you know, sort of saying like, we're not going to waste anybody's time. Yes. Fine. You're not going to be a threat. So we'll allow you, we'll allow you yeah. to be an expert witness. Yeah. Um, he, he has this condescending thing that comes across almost like it sounds almost kind, but is very cutting and condescending. Lumet uh, said that his performance arrived fully formed mm-hmm. from the head of Zeus or something yeah. like that. Well, you know, I was listening recently to, I'm getting ready to do The Godfather 2 on the podcast, and I was listening to Coppola's commentary, and he said an interesting thing, which was that all the Italian actors, that apparently the Italian style is that the actor shows up and has a completely 
fleshed out characterization already ready to go. And the director's job is to sort of maybe trim off some of the things that don't work or amplify some of the things that do, as opposed to what he says is more of an American style, which is kind of like as an actor coming to him and asking him to tell the actor what to do. Yes. And I wonder if there's, a, there's more of a European sense of that training where you get someone like Milo O'Shea or, or James Mason who shows up and has these incredibly detailed backstories yeah. and, and things that, that happen. Um, and they then don't need a, anyone to hold their hand. They're just no, pros. They're just pros. And then there's the great ending of that shot. And this is, again, where Lumet, like to, for anyone to look at him and think he's not an artist is insane to me because he has the, the final shot of that sequence is then all of a sudden we are, we are up high and pulled far back on the other side of the judge's office, behind the judge's desk, looking from the top down at Newman, small, still in his chair, as you said, holding his coats, holding his briefcase. And he's he, Newman's button to the scene is him saying, dumb, 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 that he didn't yes. take the offer and that he antagonized the judge and the opposing counsel. It's such yes. a great, great button to that scene. Lumet, interestingly, just on the acting styles, has said that he, he will work with any... However an actor wants to work is fine with him, which just seems in keeping with his yeah. personality. Somebody wants to bring, bring it all fleshed out, he's good with that. If somebody wants to be all method, he's fine with that. If somebody wants to ask him for advice, he's fine with that. And, it's, and also, it's something so simple, which, which seems every time I hear a director talk about it and all the actors talk about it, it's like, why doesn't every film do this? And I, I know that the answer is, is money. Um, but, you know, Lumet always had rehearsal process. He had three weeks of rehearsal for the film. And yes. as Newman says, uh, they started, and by the end of the second week, they were off book. They were reading it as if it were a stage play. And there's a funny thing I posted on Instagram, which is like, City Lumet doesn't give a lot of personal information away in his book or in his interviews. As you said, sometimes you get these little flashes of like, maybe there's a more opinionated, cantankerous person who's mm -hmm. so careful to not say things. But random drive-by on the Dallas Cowboys and Tom Landry in the section of making movies, which is about people thinking that over-preparation curtails improvisation. And he's like, no, it's completely the opposite. Like once we all know it, then we have the freedom in the moment while we're filming to take it somewhere else. And then in that scene, he goes, I hate, now I hate the Dallas Cowboys and I've never liked Tom Landry's short-brimmed hats, but he's right about one thing. Preparation <laughs> equals excellence or something. <laughs> it's like, whoa, okay. I guess lifelong New Yorker <laughs> giant fan has the intrinsic hatred for the Dallas Cowboys, which I respect. Um, but I think you can see that, right? Like the preparation. I mean, also um, Moonstruck is another example where the director had coming out of a theatrical background, a, a rehearsal process. And it's kind of like a, a Sidney Lumet movie that Sidney Lumet didn't direct. If you really think about it, sure. That's a lot of similar kind of themes, but I think that preparation must have helped all of these people. Yeah. I mean, he's, he, he was a child actor, which makes sense that he would be a, an actor's director, yeah. but, and, and then having to do working 
and live television for years, um, he some people said that he he would work so quickly they almost found it abrupt. But he didn't want actors to stand around getting stale. So he he right. have them rehearsed, get them up on their feet, film it, a couple of takes, move on. Um, which I I, th- I think this is the the proof is in the execution. I mean, this is such an actor's film. I mean, because we could talk at length about many many performances in this film. It's really hard to single out too yeah. many. Let's play a little more of James Mason. This is the introduction to the Ken Cannon character. There's so many things revealed about this character in this monologue performance in front of his legal team. And again, another brilliant thing the film does is juxtapose the power arrayed against Frank Galvin and this case. So immediately after the scene where you have James Mason in an ornate office with every accoutrement you could possibly need to wreak legal havoc upon someone foolish enough to sue you. He has videotapes, he has cameras, he has televisions, he has a wall of law books, he has 20 lawyers sitting around a table. 14, I counted. You counted them? Okay. (laughs) So imagine billing 14 lawyers plus whatever (laughs) Kincannon's fee is to the archdiocese, right? It's just tens of thousands of dollars a day. And this is how we're introduced to the character and his approach here. Acquaint yourselves again with the depositions. Don't rely on the fact that we did it last year. Do it again. We shall be reviewing it here. You do it at home. You each have a full file, so know the depths. And I want you all to be here when we work with the defendants. When is that, Billy? Wednesday evening. Uh Uh-huh. I want an article as soon as possible in the Globe, uh, St. Cat's, Neighborhood Giant, Serving the Community, etc. We've got it in the files. And I want something in the Herald Monday morning. Our gallant doctors, huh? Be inventive. Hmm? And television. You've got to have television. Friedman, since you're still with us, why don't you have a word with uh, your friend at GBH, huh? Hmm. Now, to belabor the obvious for a moment, our clients are the Archdiocese of Boston, the St. Catherine Labore Hospital, and the doctors Marks and Towler, two of the most respected men in their profession. The thrust of this defense will be to answer in the court, in the press, and in the public mind, to answer the accusation of negligence this completely that not only do we win the case, but we win the case so that it is seen that this attack on these men and this institution was a rank obscenity. I mean, it's musical, you know? The way he says globa, globa. <laughs> that this attack, that these men, that it is seen to be a thing. I mean, it's just such an incredible piece of music. It's It's speaking with so much intent yeah, he, behind he, it, so effortlessly. It's insane. And, and that's a great analogy because he's, it's almost like he's conducting this group. There, there'll be moments where mm-hmm. one of his eager young acolytes will raise their hand and he, he will point at them and, and then he knows what their point will be without even them having to say it. Yes. Um, and they're his little band yeah. or orchestra following him around. The, the smugness and self-satisfaction of this mm-hmm. posse of lawyers is just such a great callback the several times you see them all in a group throughout the film. Mm-hmm. It almost made me like just their kind of their self-satisfied entitled glee yes. with the way they were going to run over the opposition really creates a sense of what Galvin is up against. 
there's the great moment when Galvin, having lost the real quality expert in Dr. Uh, Goober, um, has to settle for, you know, someone else off a sheet who's not the first choice. And he happens to be black, pointedly in Boston in the late 70s or the early 80s, as we're set in here. And one of the acolyte lawyers smugly saves as, you know, the last damning bit of evidence against this expert. And he's black. And James Mason turns and comes to him and is this very serious way sort of says, I'll tell you what you do with that. You do nothing. You don't mention it. You don't reference it. He's got the, he's like in moral high dudgeon. He's not laughing it off like the rest of them are. And then he buttons it with, and let's get a black lawyer to sit at our table. And then they all kind of smugly laugh together. Yes. It's so so uh. well done as a piece of writing and acting. Oh my God. I mean, the beginning of that scene, which I didn't play just because it was a little too long, it starts so brilliantly with this jovial denial of one of the lawyer's long planned vacations. Like the, the, the St. Bart, the 13 of the lawyers are seated around the conference table. One straggler comes in and, and, and Mason and Concanon says, uh, are you on vacation? You off to St. Bart's? Yes. Yes. Well have, uh, and then he turns to his, his assistant and he says, Send Mrs. Whomever a dozen roses. Oh, no. What does he say? A sand dab or a sun lamp? I don't know. What uh, a sun lamp. A sun. Send her a sun lamp. And they all <laughs> laugh. And it's like, I'm sorry. You have to cancel. All hands on deck. And the guy sort of laughs. He, 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 this is the control that Ken Cannon has over 14 other lives. He can, yes. he can dictate what they do, what they don't do. He's fully and completely and malevolently in charge and represents such institutional evil you know he's the prince of fucking darkness he's the prince of fucking darkness <laughs> <laughs> he just he really is um the way galvin says oh in concannon he's a good man yeah and mickey just instantly good man he's the prince of fucking darkness <laughs> it's it's under i think that kind of moment kind of underscores that galvin despite being in the depths uh is still a little bit naive. It's still, mm -hmm. it's that, that thread to who he was once upon a time True, before he right. was ruined. He still, he still hasn't accepted the forces of darkness, you know, and all the but times, he needs that idealism to do what he actually does. You're right. And in all the times I've seen this movie until this time, I never really picked up on paying attention to Galvin's backstory as expressed in the film, which it really is very well. You know, the, because the, the story of what happened to Galvin is as important as the parts of his life that we see indicated in the film that he's participating in. But the story of him being this second in his class law student, uh, marrying into a white shoe law firm, as they say, upper crust law firm, and being, having his naivete broken, have his heart broken by mm -hmm. an example of jury tampering from one of these supposed as what's the great line in, in Mammoth screenplay that Jack Warden gets to say, this guy thinks anyone who knows what a spinnaker is walks on water. Yes. <laughs> so good, you know, and it broke Galvin's heart and he valiantly tried to step in and do the right thing. He, he went to the partners uh, and said, I'm, I, I'm disappointed. I'm going to the judge. I'm going to tell them what you did. And they teach him a lesson. They have him arrested for the jury tampering they did. 
and he learns his lesson in jail and he falls on his sword and calls and agrees that he made a mistake and they let him out, but his wife leaves him and he falls into drinking and that's where we pick him up three or four years later. And I think it's very effective the way Mickey just tells the story to Laura in the film. Mm. In the screenplay, Mamet actually tells some of it through inserts of like of yeah. articles clipped from the paper detailing his downfall with pictures of Galvin looking confused to be arrested. And that felt a little heavy handed to me. I think it just makes sense that Mickey, because Mickey was was his mentor. Mickey was his mentor right. before he went to the White Shoe Law Firm. Law firm. And then Mickey, I think, picked him up after that. Right. Until Mickey retires, they work together. So Mickey's been there on both sides of it. And just to have Mickey tell it with this really kind of gruff. Mm. Yeah. You know, he it's it's unlike that story, Laura. But he I obviously likes the guy. I love that line as he finishes telling this heartbreaking story. And you like that story, Laura? It's something about that line. It's so uh it's unsentimental, even as he's telling what he knows to be a sentimental story, if that makes sense. You like that yeah. story, Laura? You want to know anything else about Frankie? I guess it's yeah. setting up that he his intuition is already going off a little bit. Uh-huh. That something is amiss. Yeah, he's wa- he's wary of her. What what's your motive in yeah. in wanting to be with with Frank? I think is kind of what he's starting to wonder about. Now here's another thing I wanted to ask you as an author, a novelist. In the book, we the reader know that the Laura character is a traitor from the very first beginning of her introduction as a character. And in a novel, it occurs to me, you can make more of that, or you can, like, you wouldn't have the sort of one moment reveal that you have in a film. In a book, for some reason, there's more room to have the betrayal be something that we follow. Why does that work more in a book than in a movie? Like, if you showed her before you show her in the film being a part of the defense, would you lose something in the movie or gain? I don't know the answer. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, it's such a powerful revelation and so beautifully handled in the film, the way we see Concanon addressing her mm. in the scene where she finally takes the money. And in the script, it's it's he's not giving her money. He's giving her a report on Galvin, which is what mm. Mickey then finds in her purse, which makes a lot less sense than the money. The yeah. money is so much more damning and much yes. more powerful. It's only $575. Yes. Uh, that's that's brutal. Um, partly, I think you, you just have less time in a, in a screenplay, so you've got to do everything a lot more efficiently. Mm. But um, in, it's a classic technique in uh, thrillers and suspense novels to have some sort of major revelation that the the main character doesn't know about that the reader knows about it's the same it's the same thing that makes us you know the cliche the haunted house stuff like we know why they shouldn't right. go into the basement <laughs> right. um because we know what's down there right. and the the protagonist blithely goes down there and it's just such a simple device of just like well we know more than you and so we're feeling protective for you mm. and i think that um you, you know you if you reveal it in a sudden moment late in a novel, it feels, you know, kind of like a, a deus ex machina or something. It feels almost like you're not playing fair. I think in a novel, you spend so much time, the reader spends so much time with the work that they really want the author to play fair with them. Interesting. Like it's more omniscient, you know, you know more of everything that's going on with everyone. And yeah. you're in you, you, I guess it's more powerful in a novel to, as you said, understand something that's happening to the character that the character doesn't even know is happening to them. 
I mean, it certainly could be handled another way as long as it, it, I, again, you know, having failed to read the book, which really chagrins me, but you know, it could be a, played as a revelation if you're planting clues throughout that the reader, I mean, it's like the, the, the perfect um, kind of denouement of any story where there's there's a twist is just sort of like this sense that it's surprising and yet inevitable, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, where you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, that's what everything pointed to all along. <laughs> right. And so a good writer could have written her betrayal like that in a novel. Sounds like he's maybe a little bit of a workmanlike writer. Maybe he couldn't pull that off. I mean, did you think it was reasonably effective to have to know throughout? Well, it was in a lot of ways. And I want, and I think Newman must have been aware of this because one of the great things is in the first seduction scene where they're together in his rat trap apartment. No, I'm sorry. He's at her apartment the first time they get together. And as he's leaving the morning after, he notices that she has a legal diploma framed on the wall, but it doesn't, it doesn't register to the character. Like it's a really great moment in the book where, uh, he misses it. Yeah. And then almost the next thing is sort of like, there's, you know, he, I think he writes something that's sort of someone else like casts doubts on her, what her motives are. And he's, he, he, it's written so that, you know, he missed the point of seeing that she had a diploma a legal diploma. So in that sense, it kind of worked. And it does work in the book more to understand what's going on. Yeah. You you get more of what Kincannon is doing behind the scenes and how they're trying to set up yeah. and manipulate Frank Galvin. So it is it is effective that way. But one of the things that's that's interesting about classic films like this is we almost can't remember, we can't put ourselves back to the place we were the first time we saw this and maybe the audible gasp that went up in the cinema when it's revealed through that brilliant device of of finding the check as he's rooting around her purse for cigarettes. Like, we don't know anymore because we know it. So now we're watching these scenes and you're watching Charlotte Rampling's brilliant performance and what's read on her face in so many scenes. Um, Like that scene we were just talking about when she's sitting across the bar with Jack Warden um, you can see the pain on her face as she realizes what she's doing to someone she actually does love at this point. Her performance is just amazing. And you were talking uh, before we started recording about how, or I think when we were emailing, you were saying something about it. it's kind of a little bit difficult to, to pick a good audio clip for her because so much of her mm. performance is quiet and you know, you could say reactive and, uh, Mm -hmm. but she does so much with her face, with her expressions, with the, the relatively few lines of dialogue she has. Um, you see her entire emotional journey, Mm -hmm. the cost of the betrayal on her, her regrets, her desire to, to come clean, her inability to do it. And then when he assaults her after he learns of her betrayal, her, forgiveness of him. Yes. I mean, it's, that's a shocking moment that we can talk about, but I just, it, it's such an interesting performance because I, I think that like you look at both of the, the main women roles in this, and there's, there's a, a couple smaller ones that are, are worth talking about, but like from today's sensibility, you could look back and say, this is a, a film about men where women are really marginalized and they don't get a whole lot to do. I think that 
Lumet is conscious of that and sympathetic to that. I think that he's very intentionally playing these these women as being kind of crushed by the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. um, and yet they both have amazing moments within this very male world that has really done them wrong. I don't, I don't want to like, you know, jump back and forth between, <laughs> between the two, the two uh, actors, but just keeping on rambling for a moment. Um, she could be a femme fatale. Right. Mm -hmm. Like she could simply be like, she's the beautiful woman at the bar. Mm -hmm. um, she's luring him into a trap and she betrays him. And I can think there was so many directors, so many screenwriters where this would have just been a throwaway mm -hmm. crap character. And yet it's unforgettable. They turn it the, into something. They turn it into something substantive and moving and human and messy and conflicted and all the brilliance of real life. The tears in her eyes when she accepts the well, she doesn't accept the check, and Cannon puts in her purse. I know, which is the such tears an in her choice, eyes. Just when we we finally see it's her, we're shocked to discover that it's her, but we also see that she's in extreme pain and regretting this entire thing. It's devastating. You know, I want to talk about that. The the choices made in that scene where, as you mentioned in the first part, you have Ken Cannon delivering this, this, this monologue, and we don't yet know, if you haven't watched the movie, you don't yet know that she's the person he's talking to. And pointedly, he doesn't hand her the check, which would be a moment of incriminating involvement to physically take the money from Ken Cannon. He almost furtively puts it in her purse, which makes, mm -hmm. it, makes it weirder and more interesting. I don't know why. Like... It's almost like he's he's making her complicit in something she doesn't really want to be a part of, I guess. Like, that's a choice, right? Mm -hmm. It's a choice to do it that way as opposed to the scene we've all seen where she begrudgingly takes the money because she needs it. Yeah. I mean, I read the the action of him putting the, the money in her purse as being just kind of um, – a dramatic efficiency mm. because because it really it makes sure that the viewer can track the money to when uh, Mickey finds right. it. You're right. However, I agree that I think that even if that was their reason, uh, I think it makes it a very interesting choice. It's almost that he knows, Concanon knows that Laura mm. isn't in a state to accept it. She doesn't want it in her hand. And it also shows like a weird little bit of oily sensibility on his part because if he wanted to, if he was a more He's he's a master at kind of putting people down while being kind to them. Yes. And if he wanted to just crush her, he would force the money into her hands or drop it in her lap. That would be like the, the mustache twirling villain way to do but he it. Still needs but that's her. not his way. Yeah. It's very keeping with his character. Like, yes, I own you, but I'm just going to be a gentleman about it. I'm just going to put mm -hmm. this in your purse. And the devastating end when he sits next to her on the couch and hands her the whiskey and the expensive crystal cut tumbler. And he says, you know, you wanted to return to the world. Welcome to the world. And he's got this world weary. This is what it is to be back. You wanted to come to Boston and get back into your legal career. This is how you do it. And yeah. it's, it's devastating. I wanted to play a scene with Laura, this kind of her most ferocious moment in the film, as you mentioned, the, the, the brilliance of Rampling's performance is enough in all of these still moments where the camera is reading things on her face 
that are going on internally for her as an actor, but are not verbalized. It's such a fascinating test case to me of what I love about actors is you could reduce it on the one hand and say, she just has this face. If you point the camera at her face and she's just sitting there, you can read all of this emotion that maybe isn't going on. But I think it's very clear that she has the ability with her incredible face to express tremendously complicated, convoluted emotions without words, yet she also can deliver a devastating rebuke, as she does, to Galvin, who defeated, shows up expecting sympathy. And this is part of her brilliant character development in the film because he gets completely the opposite reaction that not only he would expect, but to your point, maybe we would expect in a film of this sort. Oh, God, I never should have taken it. There was no way I could win. And it's over. Yeah, it's over. But I thought it wasn't over until the jury comes in. Who'd you hear that from? From you. You want me to tell you it's your fault. Okay, it probably is. What are you going to do about it? I wanted to talk to you. I thought maybe... Maybe you could get some sympathy. You came to the wrong place. Well, what makes you so tough? Maybe I'll tell you that later. They're going to be later? Not if you don't grow up. You're, you're like a kid. You're, you're coming in here like it's, like it's Sunday night. You want me to say you have a fever so you don't have to go back to school. Why won't you understand? I do understand, Frank. Believe me, I do. You say, you say you're going to lose. Is it my fault? Listen, the damn case doesn't start before tomorrow and already it's over for you. It is over. You want to be a failure? Then do it someplace else. I can't invest in failure, Frank, anymore. I can't. Excuse me. What a brilliant scene. Oh, man. You want to be a failure, do it somewhere else. Oh, my God. So <laughs> devastating. I mean, and, the, and also one of the very few places where the score is used because most of the other, most of the rest of the film is not scored in this manner. You hear Johnny Mandel's great string uh, sequence there under that just utterly complicated scene where so many things are going on. Um, Galvin's inability to handle pressure. And she's right. That's what's so brilliant about your, your point about she could have been just a femme fatale, mm-hmm. but she's a truth teller. She, she reveals the truth to him that even he can't see, even as she's betraying him. She's having second thoughts about betraying him 
And it, it, it there, there's that weird little parable or whatever it is, that little idiom that uh, Galvin uses a couple times in the movie. It's a long road that has no turning, which yeah. I wasn't familiar with, but it's something about change. Mm -hmm. It's uh, and you know, he he obviously undergoes a massive change of conscience, as does she. Mm -hmm. And you know, if she were merely out to betray him, she would take him to bed and hold him and oh, tell me all about it. Tell me what's wrong. And she's she's deciding just as just as he decided at the bedside of this this sick girl that he's not going to, he's not going to take the money. She's deciding like I can't ruin this man. Mm -hmm. um, I'm telling I've got to tell him to fight. And she's angry at him. And I think she's also sensing something in his failure that resonates with her own failure. Right. I can't invest in failure. Not anymore. Yeah. And what's so brilliant is Lumet says the button of this scene is he's in the bathroom. He's having a full on panic attack. Don't pressure me. Then it cuts to her asleep in the bed and Galvin obviously staying awake all night. He's got a whiskey. He's got a cigarette. And he puts the, the whiskey down. And he comes over to her and he, he kisses her sleeping head. And Sydney says that was, that was Newman's idea. He thought the, the, that the scene needed a little bit of a, of an, of a, of a moment between the two moments. And yeah. they were like, let's just shoot it and maybe we won't keep it. But when he put the film together, he realized it really was necessary that it somehow uh, was such a, such an additive emotional layer to the Galvin character that I think shows that he understands that she was right. right? Yes. And interestingly, I, if I'm not very much mistaken, that's exactly opposite from what they did in the screen, uh, Mamet wrote in the screenplay, which is that um, she watches him sleep, which mm. I think it would just would have been the wrong choice here yeah. because she, her words have kept him up all night right. pondering and he needs to make the change. That's fascinating. And, um, there's another great screenplay moment with her where in what proves to be the turning point of the case, which is Frank figures out that it's the Lindsay Krauss character that they that is the key to the whole thing. Um, but pointedly, Laura doesn't call that in. You know, the, that's, that's the scene. What's so brilliant about the screenplay is, and Lumet makes a, makes a big deal of this many, many times, is that um, just as things are looking up for characters in one way, Mamet stages the beginning of a doom spiral underneath it. And as viewers, when we realize that they've stumbled upon uh, the missing witness, that's when uh, that's when she leaves. That's when like that's when she leaves. Uh, and they show her approaching a phone bank and not calling in the fact that they are tracking down the nurse. Well, they leave it ambiguous as to whether she calls or no, not. No, I think you know she doesn't call because otherwise uh, James Mason, Kincannon, everyone wouldn't be surprised in court when when they call well, her, which no, they I mean, of course, Of course, we know later she didn't call, but what I mean is in that oh, moment. Oh, yeah, in that moment, you don't know if she called. Correct. You don't know. You're right. You're right. It's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's so hard to watch sometimes because when you know what happened, when you know what happened, it's almost as if this, the screenplay works in multiple ways, which I think must be a sign of brilliant writing because it works if you've never seen the film where you think, oh shit, she's going to call that in. 
But yeah. it also works when you know that she didn't call it in. It also works that way. Like, does great writing always work both ways? Or is this just some Mamedian genius trick? I don't know. But man, it works incredibly well. Great writing has layers. Yeah. It's you also don't know when she wants to go to New York. You could read that if you're if you're all in on the betrayal aspect and you're not you're not mm. recognizing the signs that she's having second thoughts, you could think that she wants to go to New York because she's trying to catch up on what he's, what he's doing, doing there so she can report back. But in fact, she wants to go to New York to confess right. because she wasn't able to tell him. Well, she tries to, she tries to confess in the scene just before the one I mentioned where she, Frank, I must, I've got to talk to you. Yeah. No time, no time. Yeah. Uh, hey, Laura, don't forget the cigarettes, huh? And, <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, it's, and, and, and Lumet points out how the screenplay keeps you, uh, invested in her rather than discarding her by showing her attempt to confess it's that is a brilliant little thing too to your point where uh you kind of have to remain on her side a little bit right after you know yeah. that she's betrayed him and that's I mean, generally like as as a device in in fiction and in films it, it generally drives me a little crazy when somebody has some information <laughs> that they can share and they're just not allowed to share it because like, I can't talk now yeah. or whatever. I, I, I will say it like that her inability to tell him because he's too busy on the phone is, I, I think that's not the strongest it's moment a device. Of, yeah. of, the, of the film, but ultimately I accept it. I mean, it's all the The journey is overall is plotted extraordinarily well. I mean, she could blurt out. Yeah. I'm working for Ken Cannon, you know, <laughs> when her accent slips through in her emotional moments. Now let's, <laughs> let's talk about the, the punch. Um, this is a, this is a scene that still polarizes people. It's a, it's a fascinating choice. And I've noticed now I've done enough of these episodes and I've listened to enough commentaries that there's a tell, which is that you would think this would be one of the most discussed moments in the film by the filmmakers. Instead, it's not. I can't find any of them talking about the decision to use this scene other than that Paul felt it was it was necessary to keep in even as people wanted to take it out to kind of be protective of Paul Newman's image, it sounds like. Yeah. Like Sidney Lumet sounds like he was willing not to shoot that scene. But Paul was the one who said, no, I think this is true to who Galvin is. Mm -hmm. Um. It's still shocking. It's still jarring. It's it's filmed incredibly well. And the use of the off-camera tittering and did you see that? I think he hit her. You know, there's such great little ADR dialogue. Um, no, it, it is still shocking. Absolutely. It has it has real power. It's not in any way a B-movie slap no. that's um, you know. So often, I mean, how many times have you seen in a film where somebody gets slapped across the face, mm -hmm. their head turns, and then their head pops right back, yes. and they, they lock, lock their steely gaze upon the person <laughs> who slapped them? I mean, yeah. how many, just mean, a meaningless gesture in so many films. Yeah. This, Frank has been betrayed one time in his life before mm -hmm. that almost ruined his life. He's finally getting it back together, and he's been betrayed again. Yeah. And... He doesn't premeditate it. It just comes out of him. And it's a it's a scary moment of violence that that feels true to the movie. The way she goes down mm -hmm. and like the furniture kind of falls yes. and like that. The crockery. Yeah. I, I I think it's a little interesting that the 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 people in the bar who kind of emerge to put their hands on Galvin mm -hmm. 
are a little gentle in a way. I, I feel like you could have also directed that to be, you know, somebody shoves them, hey, buddy, you know, something, yeah. you know. Um, but in keeping with the kind of painterly aspect of so many shots in this film, you know, and we're kind of coming towards the, the most painterly shot of all, which is the, the final trial sequence, like the, looking at the, I think it's three guys kind yeah. of flanking him. Mm-hmm. There's the, the the bartender guy at the bow tie and mm-hmm. a couple of patrons. They're, you know, when she tells them it's okay, they kind of pause, but there's this weird moment of stillness where you would almost expect them to be jostling him around. Yeah. But it it ends up looking kind of painterly and, and interesting. It makes the moment more unsettling to me. I think of it in the context of what I heard Lumet say a few times, which is he always approaches every scene in a film with, what is this scene about? There's one, there's, there's a scene where Galvin is desperate and he's looking for Dr. Goober and can't find him. And he goes to his office. He's not there. He goes to his apartment and his housekeeper is there. And in the commentary track, Lumet says, you know, the standard way to direct this scene is you shoot his dialogue over her shoulder and then you shoot her dialogue over his shoulder. And when you put the film together, you intercut it so that you can see her talking and then you can see him talking. He's like, but I always ask, what is this scene about? And in that scene, it's about Galvin understanding in that moment that Ken Cannon has gotten to his witness and that his whole case is falling apart. And so for that reason, he keeps the camera on Newman's face because it's the registering of the information on Galvin's face that is the operative point of the scene. In this punch sequence, to your point, it's brilliantly staged, as you said, as a very realistically played bit of violence. It feels real. It doesn't feel like it's in a movie. And, but the point of the scene is not even so much Galvin's awareness of her betrayal and the violence it induces in him towards her. It's in that interlocked gaze that the two characters then have and her character saying, it's okay, let him go, or whatever she says, right? That's what the scene is about. And I think that's yeah. why they use those those men the way you talk about is, is what the scene is about is her, this is, this is the only way she can not repay him for her betrayal, but accept what her betrayal means to his character and that she is aware of it. Like she's not someone who's unaware of what she's done. Quite mm-hmm. the contrary. She is devastated and filled with the same type of self-loathing, uh, which also, by the way, in the book, her character is as much of an alcoholic as Galvin is. Oh, interesting. And it's intimated a bit in the film in the most brilliant staging, I think, is when they get together at Galvin's apartment. He makes them a couple of drinks. And again, in the same way we talked about in Color of Money, the tactile way that the money is handed back and forth in Color of Money, uh, there's a tactile thing with the audio of rocks glasses and whiskey with ice cubes in it. And it's used throughout the film in a bunch of different places when he's not just drinking shots. But this is one of the scenes where he makes them two glasses of whiskey with ice. He hands her her glass and he kisses her. They embrace, but on either side of them, they are, they are held in the embrace of alcohol because they're both holding drinks as they kiss. That to me is Mamet's acknowledgement of 
what's true of that character in the book. Uh, yeah. They are both imprisoned by alcohol. And I think that's paid off at the very end of the film with, again, a newly added scene that was not in Mamet's original screenplay where she is the one drinking in her hotel room. Yes. And Newman is not. And um, that- Yeah, we, we don't see her drunk until that moment, but we do see her keeping up with, with the guys drink for drink throughout. That's why. I think that's the point, you know. We see her a little- leery maybe but we don't see her drunk until that moment yeah so that's that's kind of something that I, you know again you're right you have to be much more economical i guess in um in the screenplay to get there um i want to talk also just wanted to play a little you know of newman in a completely different type of moment for him in the film he plays nervous terror so brilliantly <laughs> his breathing, his use of his runny nose. Uh, listen in this scene as he's scrambling yeah. to try to right the wrong. And he realizes he should have taken the $210,000 and it's too late. He lost his expert. He realizes he's screwed. Now he's trying to make these panicked phone calls to the insurance company uh, and find another expert witness and accept their offer. And listen to the physicality. Actually, I think you'll even be able to hear without being able to see it. Cape Cod casualty. Oh, uh, Mr. Alito, please. Business hours are over, sir. This is uh, a nice uh, Yes, well, I have to reach him. This is an emergency. Would you please give me his home number? I'm sorry, we're not allowed. What? Well, could you, uh, could you call him? Yes, and have him call me then. I can't guarantee that'll be uh, Yes, oh, no, no, I understand, I understand. Uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, name is Frank Galvin. Could you spell that, please? Yes, G-A-L-V-I-N. And I will be at the following number in about a half an hour. Hello? Oh, yeah. Thanks for calling. <laughs> Frank Galvin. Uh, I'm representing Deborah Ann Kay. Well, uh, I'd like to discuss your firm's offer uh, of that 210. Uh, well, in the sense that, uh, well, we'd like to accept it. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, well, it came as something of a shock to me too, but uh, it is my client's wishes and... Um, uh, she changed her mind as of tonight, and, uh, of course, I tried to dissuade her. Uh, well, uh, on, on the eve of the trial, uh, well, you understand, I think she just came down with a terrible case of the jitters. Uh, when was that arrived at? Well, I know what Concanon said, but... Uh, I think you guys are making a big mistake. I think you ought to reconsider. I think you ought to get the principles back together again. <laughs> okay. No, no. I understand. No, that's fine. I, I'm really sorry to bother you at home. Here, one day I'm going to do a special episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast, which is totally devoted to my favorite thing in films, which is one-sided phone call acting. That is one of the greatest examples in the history of cinema.
I, mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and we, we, you notice it when it's bad. Oh my God. Sometimes it's almost hard to appreciate how good it is when it's good. Unreal. I mean, real. And, and the way Newman too, <laughs> I mean, this is certainly one of his, his best performances. And I think because he's so not Newman for so much of it, you know, the way he sounds so desperate, like, you know, it's, Oh, I understand. You know, he sounds so almost subservient. We're used to him. You know, obviously he made his career on these kind of anti-authority, you know, figures, mm-hmm. these kind of rebels, these cocksure, swaggering sons of bitches, you know, mm-hmm. and and here he's just so completely unwinds that. And I was thinking during my watchings of this that there were really only two moments. I mean, obviously you're aware you're watching Paul Newman the entire time, mm-hmm. <laughs> but there were only two moments where I felt like I was seeing the kind of old, twinkly-eyed, mm-hmm. swaggering Newman. And one of them is the, the second scene in uh, Judge Hoyle's chambers, where he basically says, oh, they told me yes. about you. Yes. And he's he's kind of getting his mojo back. Yeah. And that there, there are moments where his readings, you hear the old Newman voice, and mm-hmm. he's really projecting, and he's really, you know, he's pounding on the, the desk. Um, but it's, it's okay, because it's appropriate in that scene, because he is so fired up. He's so outraged. Um, and then the other one is just this tiny throwaway moment, just when he's saying objection, uh, when objection. O'Shea is, yes. is is just like completely, that is a know, brilliant objection. blowing his case for him. I, that is a brilliant, obje- I think you're talking about the objection, or or maybe you were talking about a different one. There's an objection during the Caitlin Costello sequence where he's laying this trap for Kincannon that Kincannon completely blunders into. And his objection has a buoyancy to it. Because yes. he knows what's about to happen or hopes. Exactly. Um, I thought the other it's, one- you were, It's almost playful. It's almost playful. I thought the other one you were going to mention was the most Newman moment, the old Newman moment, is when he persuades Laura to have dinner with him in the back room at 7B, the bar. And the lighting is just astonishingly flattering. And it's where he has the speech about the weak. The weak need someone to fight for them. And his his blue eyes, he lights a cigarette in the way only a movie star can light a cigarette in any brilliantly Andre Bartkoiak photographed bit of chiaroscura brilliance. Um, I thought that was the other scene you were going to mention where he goes. But you're right. There's there's that 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 jaunty I mean, objection. That one definitely has the old blue eyes charm, but to me, it just doesn't have that kind of like yeah. physical virility of these you're other right. scenes because he's actually he's on his feet in those things too. Because right, when he says objection, right. he stands up and yes, you know. Yeah, that scene with um, where he gets the, that scene is so brilliant in court because yes, he gets his mojo back, but as he leaves, you just real he realizes there's a brilliant moment. He leaves after that, right, and then doesn't he turn as if to go back in because yes. he's realized, yeah, like you know, it's not a great strategy to fucking scream at the judge and and tell him you're basically going to try and get him disbarred. Yeah, it's amazing. He turns as if he's going to go back and then continues. I think he ends up turning 360 degrees and, yeah. and proceeds on his on his path. But there is definitely a moment of second guessing himself, which again, is just so great and it's, so human. Like it's, so it's just human. so it's what elevates it's, a, you know, 100 little choices like this are what elevate this movie to art instead of being a legal pot boiler where like by gum he's figured out what he's going to do and he's going to steam out of the judge's chambers with a mission he's always doubting himself yeah let's go to the um let's go to the costello caitlin costello uh moment because again another brilliant piece of casting here 
is Lindsay Krauss, um, who at the time was married to David Mamet, although Lumet takes great pains in the commentary track to say that it had nothing whatsoever to do <laughs> with her casting. Um, it, if it did or didn't, it certainly matters not because talk about coming in and delivering the goods here. Well, before you hit play, just a little bit of, of showbiz trivia. Um, uh, one account, John Lair says in his book, Show and Tell, that um, Mamet actually got his first screenwriting assignment through Krauss. So she so oh, um, she was on her way to audition for the remake of Postman Always Rings Twice. Oh. And Mamet jokingly told her to tell uh, Bob Raffleson, the director, he'd be a fool if he doesn't hire me to write the screenplay. Um, and whatever, there's some showbiz story there. But that's interesting. Brilliant. I didn't know that. that that may have been his his entree into wow. screenwriting. Incredible. Um, well, this this is this is her 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 big moment on the stand where, uh, as we said, the 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 only part of the movie that sort of falls into the it's, I'm not gonna say it's a trap of the legal thriller contrivance, but I mean it is a thing. Like I'm not sure that in real life, if you were a lawyer and you had the smoking gun of Caitlin Costello Price you would you would allow the other counsel to be the one to trap themselves rather than setting the trap and springing it yourself but it's a risky strategy it's a risky strategy but it but it works in this case but here's i mean i'm going to play you what sydney said after about this uh, i'm going to play that right after i play this after the operation when that poor girl, she went into a coma, Dr. Towler called me in. He told me that he'd had five difficult deliveries in a row and he was tired. And he never looked at the admittance form. And he told me to change the form. He told me to change the one to a nine. Or else, or else he said, he said he'd fire me. He said I'd never work again. Who were these men? Who were these men? I wanted to be a nurse. Lindsay is an extraordinary actress and personality. Her, her it's... Her, when she finished her scene with uh, uh, where James Mason cross-examines her, I, of course, had kept the people, the spectators, in the courtroom because it would have made a difference the way they played it. And even though they weren't on camera, every person was watching the scene. Did you ask the patient? And when did she last eat? When Lindsay finished her take with James Mason cross-examining her, uh, all of the actors burst into applause. I've never seen that happen on the set. I've heard of, heard of it happening with crews, and I've seen crews applaud, etc. But I've never seen other actors applaud. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> chills. It's chills. incredible. And she is so good um, in that moment. And you know what's a great button in that scene that I just noticed? When Dr. Towler 
after James Mason, you have this incredible emotional moment with her where you, where you realize like the jig is up and then can Cannon successfully gets her testimony th- thrown, gets the document that she has, which proves that Towler lied thrown out. He also gets her entire testimony thrown out. And there's a great moment where Dr. Towler tries to put his hand on Ken Cannon's arm as if to say, oof, that was a close one, but we did it. And Ken Cannon pulls his arm away. Did you notice that? Yes, I did. Uh, actually, only on my, my most recent viewing. Do you think and- that's because he, is it a humanizing moment of Ken Cannon where he says, you disgust me because I was unaware that you actually lied and caused this horrible thing to happen? Or is it, you just made me look bad? What, what is it for Ken Cannon, do you I, think? I can't decide. I mean, I think that certainly he, Miss, Mr. Master of Preparation, Ken Cannon, would be furious to have any surprises thrown at him. Um, I don't think that we've seen enough of a conscience from him to, <laughs> to be able to be certain that he's actually disgusted by the guy. But, but maybe. I mean, one should be disgusted by that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I wonder, is it a, is it a three-dimensional character thing where, to your point, Laura is not a femme fatale and Ken Cannon is a corrupt, morally corrupt scion of the ruling class, yet he is disgusted by this business? Um, I don't know. It's such a fascinating little yeah. moment. I love that there are, like, I, I like that there are so many moments here where you don't really know what's going on. I think that's a good thing that shows like dimension to characterization in a way. It's what makes it a great film to talk about. Yeah. And a- another late breaking thing I noticed or realization that I, that I had um, last night was to your point about uh, Frank's strategy of letting the, you know, defense attorney basically draw the revelation out of his, his rebuttal witness. Um, I think that that's Mamet doing a really clever writing thing where Galvin screws himself early on when he gets really excited about a line of questioning mm-hmm. and leads him and, and then, and then uh, commits the cardinal sin for a lawyer of asking a question to which you don't already know the answer, right? which is a great bit. And I think I think this movie was where I, you know, seeing this movie a million years ago is where I first heard about that stratagem. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's Galvin's actually turning the tables mm-hmm. on Concanon because Concanon ultimately gets so excited in badgering right. uh, Lindsay Krauss's character that he finally a- asks a question to which he doesn't know the answer and then is penalized for it. That's true. You're right. And I guess also if I thought about it as a piece of courtroom dramaturgy, it would make sense that Frank Galvin needs to lay the trap, but he couldn't, even if he sprung the trap and revealed that she has a copy of the document, uh, it would give, as it does, it gives Ken Cannon's character enough time to quickly recover and squirm out of the trap, but he's not playing for that. He's playing for the for the reaction in the courtroom and the fact that it's ridiculous for a judge to instruct jurors to unhear something they just heard. Uh, so I guess it actually does make sense that that's the way you would do that. And 
and to have him be the one surprised, uh, to have Kincannon be the one surprised, I guess, makes that work. Because we saw him when he thinks, remember he comes out of the judge's chamber after the fight and he's like, oh shit, you know, it's a great mammoth moment because the character got his moxie back, his fight back, but at the same time he realizes he just completely antagonized the judge probably to his case's detriment. And then that is underscored by the sweet-faced sister saying in her Boston accent, you have other tactics though? You have other, you have <laughs> yeah. other tactics? I mean, uh, you know, oh, 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 yes, uh, yeah, so we, we, we will, you know. But then when we cut back to his cross-examination of Dr. Towler, he's not really cross-examining him. He's just desperately trying to get the screaming point in that it caused massive brain damage. Yeah. He just wants the jury to hear that because he has nothing else to, to do. And then even the judge is sort of solicitous to Galvin. He's like, Mr. Galvin, you're not letting the witness answer. You know, he doesn't <laughs> scream at Galvin. He just says, let him answer. And the judge says, I would like to answer. And that's the moment you're referring to where mm -hmm. he says, it's right there on the chart. She was anemic. She was yes. already not getting enough blood to her brain. And Galvin is destroyed. Yes. So I guess you're right that it does bring, bring that back. And... Um, I said on Instagram, I was going to play the entirety of this and I don't give a shit what anyone thinks you have to hear it. It's shot in one take. There's nothing you can say about Newman's performance of this summation, which I did cut down a little bit for you people out there, but I'm still playing the whole damn thing. Oh yeah. Wow. You know, so much of the time we're just lost. Say, please, God, tell us what is right. Tell us what is true. I mean, there is no justice. The, the rich win, the poor are powerless. We become tired of hearing people lie. And after a time, we become dead. A little dead. We think of ourselves as victims. And we become victims. We become... We become weak. doubt ourselves, we doubt our beliefs, we doubt our institutions, and we doubt the law. But today you are the law. You are the law. Not some book, not the lawyers, Not a, a marble statue or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are, they are in fact a prayer. We have a fervent and a frightened prayer 
in my religion, they say, act as if you had faith. Faith will be given to you. If. If we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. See, I believe there is justice in our hearts. And yet Ben Kingsley wins best actor. <laughs> Still pisses me off. You know, yeah. the, the the there's a couple places in the movie where Lumet cites that Mamet's prose is a little purple, yet the acting is so good that it you believe it. That that it's a it's a prayer, it's a a frightened and fervent prayer is one of those lines that in lesser hands would just ring so clunky, I think. But Newman pulls it off <laughs> somehow. He, he pulls it off, and I think we're also more willing to accept it just given he's been dragged through the depths of hell to get to this moment. It, yeah, you're, you're just sort of willing to grant it to him. But I agree. On the page, it seems a little lofty, but you can't argue with the performance. It's a great example of the way they film this because it's a set because Lumet needed to have this angle that he starts from, which is way up high on the right of the frame as Newman begins speaking. The part I cut out is a great part where Galvin has to, I mean, I'm sorry, where the where judge has to ask Mr. Galvin, Mr. Galvin, a couple times yeah. before Newman rises and begins this summation. And, you know, it's one take. It's coming from the top right, and we're coming down and pushing in and ending up. And you couldn't do that if you were filming in a real courtroom. And it's one of the many shots in the film. The other one, the one I just played before, where he's he's desperately trying to reaccept the offer he turned down. That is also built on a set because uh, the set is on stilts so that the camera can be below the floor shooting up at Galvin on the phone, which is another great little bit of use of sets in an otherwise uh, great use of, of, of real locations. And of course... It'll probably ruin it for you to know that Bruce Willis is sitting in the in the crowd <laughs> as an extra once you once you're watching this brilliantly moving iconic piece of American film acting. I wish I never knew that Bruce Willis and Tobin Bell were extras in the in the uh in the audience of the of the courtroom. <laughs> I'm with you because that I want to know mean, that. That shot is just so stunning. I mean, oh. the, so many visual choices throughout this. I mean, again, like how does he not win best director for this? There are just, there's so many examples. Yeah. Uh, you decided two of the greatest. Um, but that courtroom scene looks like an old master's painting. I know that they, you know, we didn't really get into it, but that they definitely were referencing paintings and, and classic art techniques in order to kind of come up with the palette for this mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. But just the composition of that shot and the stillness, the way he rises and begins speaking almost without moving uh, in the script, it says he's standing and addressing the jury box from the start, mm -hmm. but the choice to have him wearily rise, mm -hmm. slumped, 
and begins slowly. And only halfway through does he even cross to the jury box. And at that point, he's not, it's no histrionics. He's not Gregory Peck. He's yeah. not, <laughs> he, he's just speaking and he's giving full weight to those words. And the, the, the composition of the courtroom spectators, I mean, you see a few nurses' uniforms there. You see there's a, a line of kind of shadow running through mm. the seats that just creates this really powerful visual effect. It is a painting. It is. And, you know, I'm so thankful that everyone is at a position in their career at this time to resist what must be so tantalizing for a movie star of Paul Newman's caliber, who could probably get his way if he wanted to say, I, I think I should be more like a thundering Gregory Peck in summation here. You know, not a moving, quiet, powerful, still summation. But of course, it's absolutely the perfect choice. And I'm kind of retroactively like on edge because of how easily it seems like it could have tilted into another direction, <laughs> you know, with a different with a different personality at a different place in their career, trying to show off in some way, as opposed to trying to stay as honest as everyone here seems to stay to the screenplay. And the characters yeah. who are real people that we've come to know in this. Uh, and even Jack Warden sitting silently at the table listening is part of the brilliance of the scene to me. Like, he's moved too. Um, and of course, the great story is, Sidney Lumet says, <laughs> they, they, you know, it's a complicated sequence of timing to do this and to get that speech out with exactly the right pacing so the camera can meet him at the right point. It's much more complicated than it looks for a one-take, one-move camera shot. So they, they set all this up, they get it, they rehearse, and Newman just delivers an absolutely pitch-perfect take where everyone is like, holy shit, we got it. And a day or two later, they're in the, <laughs> they're in the screening room looking at the rushes, the dailies, and there was what they call a hair in the gate, which means there was something which scratched the film emulsion as it ran through the camera and the take was rendered useless. It had a scratch running all the way through it. <laughs> so they had to do it a second time. And Lumet says, never in his career has that ever happened and you're happy with the result of the second one. Like it just never is as good as the one you lost, except this time. Like, he said, I've never, it's never happened before or since. Paul did it again, and he was better. <laughs> it's just, it couldn't end better, right? Yeah. I, what I wouldn't give to see that first one, just. <laughs> I know. They should have that as an outtake. I mean, again, yeah. if this was, why isn't this a criterion with all of that stuff? I don't, I don't know why one of the greatest American films ever made doesn't have oodles of additional. Uh, why isn't there a book about the making of The Verdict? Why isn't there a criterion edition? Yes. I mean, I don't get it. I really don't get it. I mean, I don't Let's think- Let's start a petition. I don't think we're alone in, in revering this film. Okay, I want to wrap up just with some of what I'm calling the ephemera, um, which are just some ancillated kind of interesting pop culture things. The first one I want to mention is, there's a famous only to me probably, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in Roger Ebert's original written review of The Verdict, which he was a huge fan of, he put it on his 10 best list of for 1982. Siskel liked it, but didn't like it as much. In his review, the last paragraph says something to the effect of, quote, where we see Galvin still drinking, 
And, you know, the victory doesn't matter, doesn't change him in some certain way. He basically intimates that the final shot where you see Galvin in his office drinking out of a coffee cup and the phone is ringing and we know that it's Laura drunk in her hotel room calling and he won't answer. Ebert's position in this written review was that that scene showed Frank Galvin still drinking, quote, unquote. Now, I don't think anyone could look at this and think that's true. And I have an entire... um, I have an entire memory, which must be the Mandela Mandela effect, because I have a memory that somewhere someone asked Ebert about this in some form of writing. Like, are you you're a Chicago guy? Are you familiar with Cecil Adams and the Straight Dope column? Yeah. So that was a column that may still run. There were where where people wrote in like arcane questions, and Cecil Adams would take them incredibly seriously and research them and and provide these answers. And they could be pop culture things. They could be behavioral things or science things, all this kind of stuff. I don't know if I, for some reason, I thought that's where I read this, but I couldn't find it. I searched on the site. I couldn't find any anything referencing that someone took Ebert to task to question his statement that Frank Galvin's character is still drinking at the end of the movie, because that's a pretty big assertion to get wrong if in fact he got it wrong. Um, but it seems to me that he got it wrong. Um, he did. And let me see if I can pull this up really quickly. Um, so I remember he said something like, you know, still drinking when they obviously went out of their way to get one of those little, you know, embossed coffee, coffee cups, cup. that's like printed. Yeah. So, you know, it's a coffee cup. Um, uh, the final line is, uh, the verdict has a lot of truth in it right down to the great, a great final scene in which Newman still drinking finds that if you wash it down with booze, victory tastes just like defeat. Mm-hmm. Now, he did an update. It's not coming up on my, my first search. He, he, he wrote an addendum to that review that I saw somewhere online. It's not coming up right okay, away on see, it's not coming up because That's what I think I saw, but I never saw it. I can't find it. But did you I, I saw it? it just a few days ago oh. where he says he defend, he doubled down. He doubled down. He said, <laughs> he said um, I know people have written to me that say he's, he's not drinking, um, I think it's still a question for interpretation mm. to me. He's still, you know, he's, he's still drinking, blah, blah, blah. Like he, he can't just say, you know what? Interesting. Like I have a lot of sympathy for film, film reviewers during that era. I mean, they had to watch the film in a screening room, True. bang out their review, turn it in. Yeah. It was on the streets the next day. Yeah. I, I could see him making a mistake, but I can't see him given the opportunity to correct it doubling down. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you why I think he does. Um, You know, I'm a huge Ebert fan and I've consumed all the Ebert media there is. I continue to recommend his documentary as one of the most beautiful, truthful, human and heartbreaking documentary films you ever watch. I think what he's doing here in this time is he's bringing a little too much of himself and his awareness of the disease of alcoholism and recovery to the proceedings. Although he doesn't lead with that per se in this review, um, by this point in his life, Ebert had been sober for a number of years after having been essentially a Frank Galvin level falling down bar denizen. Yeah. And I think what he's, I think what he's doing here is maybe bringing a little too much of his awareness of how these things do or don't pan out for people who try to stop drinking. I think for Ebert, it feels too pat to say, oh, and then he just gave it up and it was never a problem. And for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. While it's so clear to, I think, anyone watching the film 
particularly because of the juxtaposition yeah. with the Laura scene where not only is she drinking, but she's laid out on a hotel room bed and she drops her rocks glass to my point earlier about the audio nature of the way drinking is used, right? She tries to put yes. her glass of whiskey on her end table and it falls and spills on the floor. Now that to me is very clearly juxtaposed with new with Frank Galvin, who is calmly sipping from, as you say, what is very obviously a coffee cup. And by the way, yes. in that same desk situation, when he was panicked, we saw him go to the bottom of his desk and find a bottle of whiskey and a shot glass, not a paper cup. If he had drunk the whiskey out of the paper cup in the earlier scene, I could see Ebert's point. But yes. I'm glad you found that. But I'm, I'm, it's hilarious to me that he doubled down because I don't even remember that. I mean, he's probably, I think, I think he sort of references, you know, the effect that like, well, you know, just because you're not, you know, actively drinking, it doesn't mean you're not still a drunk or, right. or whatever he's wanting to say. And I'm like, oh, okay, of course. Like, yeah. we understand that. But in that scene, in that moment, which is, I think, all we can debate is he is not drinking. Yes. They've showed him drinking less as the movie progresses. We are to understand that he's trying to win his battle and yes. may have a shot at it. And also, we're not helped in this argument because that scene is not in the screenplay. The screenplay Correct. originally ended with there's with without us being aware of the verdict, I think. Right? Didn't this is original screenplay? Um it doesn't include that part where they're like, can we give more money to the it, it actually does. Um, but then it's a little more, it's a little truncated. And then I think Mickey says to Frank, like, this is gonna take them a while. Let's go get a drink. Okay. And so they kind of hurry out. But um so yeah, there's it's not like we could look in the screenplay and Mamet would have written Galvin now drinking coffee. Let's right. the phone ring. Cause they added that they thought they needed that, which I think they did. Right. So Mamet's ending has Mickey and Frank leaving for a drink while the jury deliberates the, the size of the award. He looks back, sees Laura mm. looks back again and she's gone, which is actually kind which, of a version of a scene movie. that ends yeah. up in the middle of the, or right. early, not in the middle, but earlier in the film. Right. But I think the, the ending that they went with is more effective. It's I love so, that, like the phone ringing I and he doesn't answer. That. You it's know what? It, re it really reminds me of um, All the President's Men, the ending of All the President's Men, which also uses a kind of grating, clacking sound of the teletype machine. So the final scene of All the President's Men is the teletype machine is, is spitting out the fact that uh, Nixon resigned. And then it just goes to black and you're in the credits. Yeah. And to me, again, everything in a movie is a choice. I love the fact that at the end of this film, his phone is so, it's a jarring ring. It is not a mellifluous ring. But when you hear it from her side, it's, it's more of, it's, it's the purring ring of the ring sounding the way it would on your phone if you were listening. Now, yeah. to me, here I am going to read way too much into this. <laughs> to me her character is listening to this mellifluous sound of hope and opportunity and a wish, uh, a prayer, if you will, a frightened and fervent <laughs> prayer that Frank Galvin will answer her call and that it can be okay and they can be together. While on his side, the ring sounds like a warning, like something you do not want to answer, which he doesn't. That's why I think they chose that ring it's a, it's a very jarring ring. Yes. And I think that's a choice. I did not think about that. I like that interpretation. <laughs> I'm going to go with that.
Another bit of ephemera is the bar, which I have to mention just because probably all of us have frequented it. Uh, if you lived in New York at any point, as I did, and you cavorted around the streets and the bars of the East Village, as I did with our mutual friend, Henry Astor, you certainly spent time uh, in the bar, uh, 7B, which is where all of these bar scenes are shot. It is still there all these years later. It probably looks exactly the same. I certainly haven't been there myself in probably 25 years, but it probably looks exactly as it does here, which it also looks exactly as it does in Godfather 1, uh, which is where the Rosado brothers attempt to kill Frank Pentangeli. And Godfather doesn't it 2? have a, a cameo in Serpico? It ha- it's in Serpico. It's been, it's been in a million movies. Um, and... So that, and it's just, I mean, you couldn't have a more perfect bar for Galvin's character to be a denizen of, and the casting of the extras in the bar is so spot on. Uh, Somebody was even talking about, I wish I could remember who said this, but in the opening scene where he's playing pinball and you see out the bar window, yeah, there's a fence across the street, but the fence seems kind of strangely prominent. It's, it's a great visual metaphor for him being trapped, you know, and, and obviously Lumet like designed a lot of this about people being trapped in the past. The whole look is antique and old fashioned, but I don't know. I'm sure the fence was just there and it wasn't planned, but it's a nice little touch. Another couple of nice little touches are in the bar. There's a couple of Newman ad libs that I think play particularly well. There's one where he comes in and he meets the Laura character for the first time. And clearly then after the fact, we know that she's there to try to seduce him into, uh, into the, the web of Concanon's nefarious plot. Um, but as he comes in, the bar is really crowded uncharacteristically. And there's a guy standing in the bar doorway. And as Newman comes in, he says, oh, sorry, no one stood there since 1959. <laughs> and then he says to the bartender, what's with all the civilians? He says, oh, rainy weather, good for business. That's one. And then another brilliant little one is um, he's off camera, but Sidney Lumet says that they were shooting this scene and he told Paul just tell some jokes. And so they're trying all these jokes and a lot of them are just bad jokes. And so he didn't use them, but he finally got one joke that was so bad that it sort of played just right. And he used it, which is in the movie, uh, which is when Newman says, geez, I cut myself shaving so bad this morning, my eyes almost cleared up. Yeah. And they kind of chuckle and he goes, bad, bad. That's Newman (laughs) out of character saying when he says bad, bad. That's Newman, not in the Frank Galvin character. That's him acknowledging to Sidney Lumet and everyone else. All right, that one didn't land. Let me try another one. But that's (laughs) the one Sidney loved and kept in the movie, which I like. And the last little bit of interconnected full cast and crew universe stuff is that the pinball machine that he's playing in 7B is a Saturday Night Fever pinball machine. And Julie Bavasso, who unfortunately we didn't get to praise Julie Bavasso, who plays the nurse Maureen Rooney also appeared as Travolta's mother in Saturday Night Fever in 1977. And she's a nice, was a brilliant actor. Bringing it all together. Bringing it all together in the full cast and crew universe. Yes. Um, that's pretty much what I got here. I don't know if you have any final thoughts. I, I that's pretty good for the first two hours. Let's just take a break and come back and do another two hours because I could definitely talk about this movie for another two. I, I will say that much like I was like I had to do, I'm not even going to say inspired. I had to do it with Spicoli's scenes in, in uh, 
Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I had to do a follow-up episode where I just talked about all of the Jeff Spicoli, Sean Penn scenes. Brilliant episode. I, I'm kind of contemplating that I have to do that here with Newman's scenes as Frank Galvin. And I would invite you to that, but unfortunately that would take four hours if there were two of us. <laughs> it has to be a solo real-time thing. So I, uh, I apologize for that. But you and I will need to find another brilliant screen page to screen adaptation to talk about. And if I may, there is a bit of a connective tissue here that we could follow on, which is that Do tell. Barry Reed, who wrote the book, well, his protege, because he was a lawyer in Boston. Yeah. His protege was Jan Schlichtman. Jan Schlichtman is the trial lawyer who became famous for a lawsuit in Woburn, Massachusetts, against W.R. Grace and Beatrice Foods. And this was the, the basis for one of my very favorite films, A Civil Action, which stars John Travolta and Robert Duvall, which is another great courtroom thriller. So just saying. I, I'd, I'd be up for that. I, I, it's been so long since I've seen it. I would be fascinated to revisit that. Well, I mean, again, it might be a little too, too, to do another courtroom run. Let's, 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 kick, let's kick around another great page to screen adaptation. Cause I think that's a particularly good use of you and your knowledge <laughs> about writing and, and scene construction and how all these things play out. But man, I just can't say enough about the verdict. And I'm so glad that I got to do this episode with you. I really appreciate you putting all the work into it that you so clearly did and being a part again of the full cast and crew cinematic universe. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's so much fun to, to talk about a film this great. Thank you, Kier. Talk soon. Thanks, Jason.